0: Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, whenever we open your word, we're never quite sure what you're going to do. Lord, our lives could be transformed this morning. Our stale experience could be transformed and renewed today. So, Father, we just pray that you would sovereignly do what you wish to do. That you would honor your name. And that you would glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. at work in me and at work in all of us as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. It happened last Thursday evening in this very room when a dozen or so of us were meeting for the preaching course. Tim Bridges, our course uh, leader, was introducing the proceedings when suddenly deafeningly he was interrupted and a cacophonous noise bellowed through the windows just over here. It was so loud it was hard for Tim to pray and even more difficult for us to keep track. We soon discovered in fact that over 60 screaming teenage girls were down in the lane just outside uh, the door here. And they were hysterically chanting and uh, wolf whistling and for the life of us we couldn't figure out who it was they were hysterical about. It was either for Tim Bridges, and he is a pretty good-looking guy, uh, fair play, uh, or it was uh, Ian Balfour and the History and Theology Forum who were meeting down in the lounge. But we were rather befuddled. And it was only the next morning when I learned the reason for this particular uh, challenge that we had. Partly, on the Thursday evening, a popular boy band was making a guest appearance in the HMV music store around in Princes Street. But if you know this uh, locale, the back door to HMV is down here in the lane. And this just was the grand explanation that the screaming teenagers were awaiting the back door exit of their pop heroes and uh, getting autographs. It was in another city centre, it was about 2,000 years ago when another cacophonous noise, a much louder noise, shattered the silence. It occurred not in downtown Edinburgh but in the city centre of Jerusalem on a day called Pentecost. And on this day, many other people who were going about their business were suddenly interrupted, first They heard a hurricane-like wind. And next, they heard the sound of praise in multiple languages. And frankly, the occasion left the crowd scratching their heads. Yet wonderfully, by the end of the day of Pentecost, this crowd had not only made a journey from confusion to clarity, But in fact, all the way from confusion to conversion. As the power of God's Spirit and the preaching of God's Word transformed the crowd in question and moved them to baptism and addition into the church family. And so my prayer this morning and this week has been that the same Holy Spirit might do the same sorts of things even today. I wonder if we've got the faith to believe that this morning. So with that hope, let's turn to Acts chapter 2 once again. Acts chapter 2, the first uh, 13 verses have described the event of Pentecost, but we're going to read what follows the explanation of Pentecost and its application to the crowd. So we're reading Acts chapter 2. It's on page 1093. In the few Bibles, please do take one if you don't have a Bible. And we're reading from verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. There's more than 3,000 people present, incidentally. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? His message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Although the events on the day of Pentecost were in many respects chaotic, nevertheless the reporting of the events of Pentecost by Luke is not... Indeed, as you fly over the terrain, as Luke, a careful historian, records what happened on that day, there is a certain order and decorum. And so in verses 1 to 13, Luke begins with a description of Pentecost. What essentially happened on this remarkable day. Following on in verses 14 to 36, Luke then relays an explanation of Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean? How is it to be understood? And then lastly, having described it and explained it, through the challenge of the Apostle Peter, Luke applies Pentecost to our lives and shows us its ongoing significance today. That's in verses 37 to 41. And so we're going to follow this outline this morning. And I trust you do still have your Bible open before you. And with no further waggling in the tea, let's strike the ball down the first fairway. Pentecost described. You see in verses 1 to 13, uh, a very simple retelling of the event, the main event of Pentecost. It's descriptive. In verse 1, it, there's the backdrop to the play. And we're provided with the setting for the drama. We learned first of all, the time that this was the day of Pentecost. And in this respect, we're joining the thronging cl- crowds who are attending the second of three annual feasts in Israel. Passover uh, uh, was the first of these. And 50 days after Passover was Pentecost. That's literally what Pentecost means. It means 50th because it was 50 days after Passover Friday. And it was here at Pentecost that there was an opportunity for Jews to gather, not only from all over Israel, but from all over the then known world. And what was it that they came to celebrate at Pentecost? On the one hand, Pentecost was a, a celebration of the harvest's first fruits in the month of May, and it was the time when the nation rejoiced as it witnessed the first fruits of grain harvest. And so they gathered together to thank the Lord for what had been produced. But additionally, Pentecost had also become associated with the giving of the law. You remember Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Well, this had been attached also to to pentecost and so as the pilgrims uh, came literally uphill towards zion towards jerusalem it would have been these two things that would have been on their mind the harvest and the law of god and isn't it wonderfully ironic in hindsight isn't it ironic that with these associations the spirit of god should come on pentecost That on the day when Israel celebrated the first fruits of harvest, that this should be the day of the first fruits of the gospel harvest, 3,000 souls reaped. And that on this day, when the Jews celebrated the giving of the law, which they couldn't keep, God would pour out his Spirit upon the church. The time is Pentecost. It's given specifically for us. And yet, look further. Uh, Paints the backdrop, the tapestry. And interestingly, he also gives us the place, but in general terms. We're simply told that all the believers were together in one place. Probably the 120 who have been meeting constantly for prayer since the ascension of Jesus. And scholars have argued, as they do, uh, about what was this place. Was it the upper room where Jesus had appeared to his disciples? Or was it simply some room within the temple precincts where the disciples frequently met for prayer? Well, we cannot be sure. And indeed, perhaps the place is kept deliberately vague. You see, under the new covenant, as the Spirit of God comes upon the church, God does not want to create a new testament holy of holies, some new sacred room where we pilgrimage to. Under the new covenant, a better covenant, God's Spirit no longer inhabits one singular place, but the entire people of God. And in this sense, the place is immaterial. Luke doesn't give us it specifically. What we do know is that suddenly, verse 2, all heaven broke loose. In a sense, it was expected, the apostles and the disciples had been waiting for the spirit to come but when it did come it was sudden and what is very evident is that it is the spirit of God that is poured out you see what they heard was a violent wind which came from heaven and you know don't you the common word that is used in scripture for the Holy Spirit is the word ruach and ruach literally means wind or spirit the breath of God that hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. The breath wind that revitalized and restored the dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. And the same spirit of God that the Lord Jesus had explained in John chapter 3 was like a wind who blows wherever he pleases. The violent wind, you see, was a tip-off that this was the same spirit, that the spirit was in the house. And in supplementing this was the the fire, what they saw. What they heard, but also what they saw. They, They saw what seemed to be, and the language is approximate, it's not exact, but it appeared to be tongues of fire. And again, this was the fire which in the Old Testament represented the holy presence of the living God. The fire that appeared to Moses, you recall, And he found that the place where he was standing was holy ground. The pillar of fire that led God's people, reminding them of God's presence, leading them forward. And here is God's presence appearing among them. And what is very significant, do not miss this, is that the fire separates out and settles on every disciple. God's presence is not limited just to individuals for short periods of time and for particular tasks. That's Old Testament. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the Spirit is poured out upon all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what they heard and what they saw both indicated the holy presence of God's Spirit. And then, so that there's no doubt, notice also what they said. As Robert was reminding us, they began to speak in other tongues And now it gets very explicit. As the Spirit of God enabled them. Again, you just read through the Old Testament. You'll find occasions where the Spirit fell on individuals and they began to speak with ecstatic utterance. And this is another telltale sign that the Spirit has arrived. You see, all of this points to the Spirit. It's easy to miss the significance of the symbols. And you know, it just strikes me that the Lord Jesus Christ was so gracious that he gave these disciples no less than three signs to make sure they didn't miss what was going on. So that they wouldn't miss the person of the Holy Spirit and they wouldn't miss the point. This was the Holy Spirit who had been promised in Acts 1 verse 4. And no wonder they praised God. must have been Way cool, as they say, to not only open their mouth and praise God, but suddenly find they could do it in Italian and uh, all sorts of other languages that they'd never learned. As the Spirit enabled them, of course. And as Robert said, a, a sign and a symbol that God's gospel and God's Spirit is for everyone, irrespective of race and background and culture. Now this, of course, is only clear to the disciples who are present. They've already been told by Jesus that the Spirit will come. And so they put two and two together. But you know, the, the rest of the crowd who are gathering in Jerusalem don't understand. They don't understand what's happening. And so Luke reports from verse 5, something of the shock wave which reverberates around Jerusalem. That people hear the violent wind, and they heard the praising of God in their native languages. Of course, they didn't see the tongues of fire. But they heard these two things, and they gathered together, and there was much confusion among them, as groups from no less than 15 nations were told, were utterly amazed, bewildered and full of questions. And not least, how did these uneducated Galileans get an education? When did they have time? When they left school early and uh, were helping their father with the nets to learn all these languages. These are uneducated, backwater folks. And so knowing that something very strange was happening, they asked, what does this mean? Among others, there was mocking as well, some derision. It's a common defense, isn't it, to simply poke fun at what you don't understand. They must be drunk, some suggest. But a clever comment is soonly, soon easily refuted. It's only 9 in the morning, and Jews fasted on feast days like Pentecost till 10 a.m., and so this was utterly ridiculous, as Peter points out. And instead, the Apostle Peter, who is in a sense the leader of the Apostles, stands up now to explain the real situation. And so from Pentecost described, we move next to Pentecost explained. And it's really a remarkable thing, isn't it, that Peter, the coward of five weeks earlier, the denier of the Lord Jesus Christ before one servant girl, now stands up before thousands, the same crowd, many of them who had crucified Christ, and gets in their face and tells them the truth of the gospel. If ever there was evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit to help us be witnesses, Peter is that evidence. And moreover, when you consider too that this, as far as we know, was Peter's first sermon. It was his first, it was in many ways his best, and it was certainly his most fruitful. Once again, this points to the work of the Spirit of God. And this indeed is where Peter begins. He begins by explaining that the Holy Spirit is the immediate cause. And to prove this, Peter points to the Scriptures. Bearing in mind that Peter is talking to a Jewish audience here, he goes to the Jewish Scriptures, of course. And he says, in effect, that Scripture points to Pentecost. Don't you know your Bible, says Peter? Joel chapter 2. What does it say there? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit what Peter is saying is that this that you see is that that was promised in the pages of Scripture. The universal outpouring of God's Spirit. Not just on some people, but on all flesh. Men and women. Sons and daughters. Young and old. And this, Joel had said, would usher in the beginning of what he called the last days. The last days is the final period of human history it's a period which dawned with the outpouring of the spirit on the day of Pentecost and if you look to the end of the Joel quote you may wonder how that relates that's the dusk if you like of the last days these are the signs immediately before the end And, and by the way these are the days in which we live today we live in these last days when the spirit has been poured out upon the church And these are therefore days of Spirit-empowered opportunity. Notice verse 21 in the quote. When all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. The age of the Spirit is an age of salvation. This is the time, if you're not a Christian, today, to come and to experience that salvation. There's a day coming when there will be no further opportunity for you and until then, we recognize with Peter that Pentecost was a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And let me point out something very obvious here. That in the sense that Acts 2 fulfills Job 2, and that Pentecost is a specific fulfillment, there's a, there's a sense in which, a very strict sense, that Pentecost is unrepeatable. It's unrepeatable in terms of its unique occasion. There's a song uh, you may have come across. I just discovered this this week. Someone pointed this out. A God of burning, cleansing flame. Send the fire. Your blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire today. Look down and see this waiting host. And send the promised Holy Ghost. We need another Pentecost. Send the fire today. Dear friends, we don't need another Pentecost. I think that's completely inaccurate. I think I know what is intended by it, but we don't need another Pentecost. Pentecost was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. It is the decisive outpouring of the Spirit upon God's church. And even as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you find that while there are many fillings with the Holy Spirit, and that happens repeatedly, there is no other baptism in the Holy Spirit as Jesus talked about in chapter 1. In the biblical context, this is a one-off event which ushered in the last days and it is tied in with the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and is unrepeatable as Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. Now, of course, we know, and Peter quoted this from Ephesians 5, that we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the church doesn't need another Pentecost. And he's a revival of God's Spirit's work within us. He's already among us. Scripture, Peter says, points to Pentecost, the unique event. And then he, he adds to this something, I think, terribly surprising. He then says that Pentecost points to Jesus. Scripture points to Pentecost, and Pentecost points to Jesus. Isn't this the most surprising fact? About the day of Pentecost. The Pentecost sermon was not about the Holy Spirit. I mean, of all the days, for the whole sermon to be about the Spirit, surely it would have been the day of Pentecost. Well, this isn't what Peter does. While Peter introduces with the Holy Spirit and explains the events of this day in terms of the Holy Spirit, he does not go on to focus on the Holy Spirit, nor continue or conclude with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even take time to expound the Joel 2 text. He just quotes it and then moves on. He abruptly and he immediately then turns to Jesus. Men of Israel, verse 21, listen to this. And we expect him to say, Holy Spirit. And instead he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, Peter is not snubbing the work of the Holy Spirit it is precisely because Peter is filled by the Holy Spirit that he preaches about Jesus. Jesus promised in John 14, 26, that when the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will testify about me. And therefore, the most Spirit-filled preaching, the most Spirit-filled sermon, is the most Christ-centered preaching and the most Christ-centered sermon. The Spirit is honored when the Son is glorified in the preaching of the gospel. That's what the Spirit comes to do. And so Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, turns and testifies to the work of Jesus. He caps in uh, verses 22 to 35, Jesus' earthly and then heavenly ministry. And you notice the emphasis in this, He's really saying here that God has rubber-stamped and approved Jesus' ministry. During Jesus' life, he was a man accredited by God through miracles, wonders, and signs, verse 22. In referencing Jesus' death, God purposed it and foreknew it, verse 23, even although evil men did it. And then Jesus' resurrection, again in fulfillment of Scripture, Psalm 16, God raised him from the dead. What is the emphasis here? It is that God has approved Jesus' ministry. God has been working through Jesus. And then we get to the climax of it. As is appropriate to this context, where Peter adds that Jesus continues to work today. Jesus' ascension and enthronement have led to the outpouring of the Spirit Verse 32, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian thing going on here. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son, and then the Son takes the Spirit and pours it out, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. In other words, the Spirit comes in power because the Son, Jesus, sends the Spirit. That's why Pentecost is about Jesus because Jesus sent down the Spirit. There's a deep sense in which the events of Pentecost point more to Christ than to the Spirit. The sermon is focused upon Jesus. And the agent of Pentecost is the Lord Jesus who pours down the Spirit. And of course, this therefore has implications for the person of Jesus. We often talk about the person and work of Jesus. Well, uh, Peter gives it the other way around. He tells us about the work of Jesus. And then he says, when we understand these things, it tells us something about the person of Jesus. And he says in verse 36, what God's verdict of Jesus is, that he is both Lord and Christ. God has testified through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that Jesus is Lord of all, And he is Savior, Messiah, Christ. And you know, friends, this is where the gospel gets personal. Because it's not just the retelling of certain events, though it involves that. It is not mere statements about the ministry of Jesus, earthly and heavenly. The work of Jesus points to who Jesus is. And if Jesus is these things, Savior and Lord, then the question comes to us. Is he my Savior? And is he my Lord this morning? The questions are even more pertinent for Peter's first audience. Indeed, they are not only sinners in general, but they are also the crucifiers of Christ in particular. Notice that verse 36 is not even so much a declaration as an accusation. God has made this Jesus Whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter just lets the weight of that fall upon his audience. If Jesus is Savior and he is Lord of all and God has put him there and you've crucified him, you're in big trouble. That's what he's saying. And we're told that immediately they were cut to the heart. And they began to ask, what must we do? It's not the last time we'll hear this in Acts. What must I do to be saved? And this brings us to Pentecost applied. Pentecost applied. And I want you to imagine, as I conclude, Peter as he concludes. Because this is really Peter's sermon that I'm preaching to you this morning. And Peter brings, at the end of all this, maybe we're saying, what's the significance of this for us? Well, Peter brings the the point home. He drives it home. And Peter's application is, first of all, marked by its plainness to us. Peter is a very plain man. He keeps it straight, he keeps it simple, and he tells us, listen, there's two things you must do. First of all, you must repent. Repent. It means to change our hostile stance towards God. It means to renounce our love affair with sin. It means to turn away from sin and to turn to God. And in this repentance, it is also an act of faith repentance. Because in repentance, we also believe something about God. Namely, that as we repent, he will forgive us of our sins on the basis of Jesus' death for sin. And so Peter looks us square in the eyes this morning. And the Holy Spirit looks into our hearts and he sees what is on the inside and he sees the failure not only of behaviour which is bad enough but the failure of attitudes that are not of love towards God or always love towards people and he says repent repent this morning and then quickly he adds and be baptised I'm not sure that Peter would be into this whole thing of uh, repenting you know when you're 21 and then getting baptized when you're 41. Repent and be baptized. Be purged from your sins and turn from your sins and then take the plunge. He doesn't say repent and then wait till you're ready. He says, repent and be baptized. What was it they used to say? Love and marriage come together like a horse and carriage. Uh, Repentance and baptism in Acts are the horse and carriage. They just come together all the time. They're meant to come together. Because you see, repentance saves. Baptism doesn't save. But baptism signifies the salvation. Repentance is what goes on inwardly as our our hearts and our minds and our our motives are gloriously changed by the Spirit. And then baptism is is a glorious symbol of that new union with Christ, the Spirit within, and so on. And so, if you are here this morning and you are an unbaptized Christian, I need to say to you, in the most loving way possible, you are strange. Right? You're maybe not strange in other ways, but in the New Testament sense, you're strange. Right? There's just this assumption across the New Testament, if you're a believer, you're baptized. And So if I said to a New Testament Christian, uh, when was it you became a Christian? When did you get saved? They might say, oh, I was baptized on such a date," Because they just believed... And they were baptized. It's a challenge for you this morning, perhaps. Repent, and then be baptized. And here's the promise for you as you come to do this. Peter assures us that God will do two things. He will forgive our sins. He will forgive those sins that we have committed against Him. He even would forgive the sins of those who crucified the Son of God. Because that's who Peter was speaking to. And He will grant us the Holy Spirit. He will give us forgiveness for the bad life we have lived. And then he will give us his spirit for the good life we can live. At the moment of conversion. And we don't need to go and find that room. We, we, we don't need to wait for the spirit to come. What we need to do is repent. And at that moment, we become part of the baptized church. And we become baptized in the Holy Spirit Christians. It's wonderful. It's wonderful you're trusting in Jesus, comes with assurances this morning. And so, Peter would, in, would invite you out. And indeed, if Peter were here today, goodness, what have I got? Ten minutes to go? Peter would be probably going on for the next half an hour or 45 minutes. He'd be keeping you where you were. Because we're told in verse 40 that with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Notice its persistence, this application. So often we give preachers about a hard time about going on and on and we confess we can be long-winded. But oh, if that persistence were the persistence of warning and pleading and tear-filled appeal to people. I've given you the, the gospel and I've explained the response to you and yet there you sit unchanged, unmoved. Why will you die in your sins? save yourselves how i like that kind of persistent preaching in my own uh, pleading in my own preaching pray for us pray for us that we can do this today where it's not cool to plead and so often in are evangelism too i wonder are we too cool about it you know we we get across the two ways to live outline and that's us done our job we put the track through the door we hand the track out we've done our job people today They don't like scolding. We know that. But there's a difference between scolding and pleading. Scolding brings tears to their eyes and maybe anger to their hearts. And pleading brings tears to our eyes. And it's hard to argue with someone who's pleading compassionately for your soul. And some of you here this morning... And perhaps you've been sitting here year after year. And you're on the brink. And if Peter were here this morning, he would say to you, Come on. Give your life to Christ. Give it over today. Christ is inviting you today. You know, I began the sermon by talking about the roar of screaming teenagers. And we also thought about the the roar in the day of Pentecost, the wind and and the the multiple languages. You know, there was another roar at at the end of the day of Pentecost. It was a different kind of roar for sure, but there was a a roar. It was the sound of 3,000 people weeping as they repented and turned from their sins. And it was the sound of, how did they even do it? 3,000 people wading into the water to be baptized. And it was a sound, probably, of singing. Don't you just imagine? It was incredible as the 120 who started the praise suddenly found that they had another 3,000 in the choir. That could be a roar that we could know in this place and in this church. Because we have the same spirit at work. We have the same gospel. We live in the same days. May God grant this morning that this year, our 200th anniversary year, we might know more of this. Repentance. Have you repented? Baptism, if you've repented, are you baptized? Addition, if you've repented and are baptized, have you been added to the church? Are you committed to be part of this distinctive group of people? And if so, maybe God will give us something of the boldness in the heart of Peter as we're filled with his spirit to be his witnesses. Weak as we are. Let us pray. Oh, breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O oh, breath of life, come, cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. Let's just take a few moments just to respond in our own hearts. to what God is challenging us to do as individuals. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Thank you, God, that as we turn to you, you have the power to change us, to renew us, to cleanse us. And thank you, Lord, for new commitments made today. Help us now to be bold, Lord, in taking a stand like Peter for you.